You're watching The Sports Objective, the podcast for pirates. You're listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on The Sports Objective. Join Coach C, a USA Strength and Conditioning Hall of Famer, every Monday night to see in a variety of guests, including former players, former and current coaches, pastors, and others will discuss relevant issues in coaching today's athlete with the goal of equipping the athlete and those coaching them with the physical, mental, and spiritual armor necessary to live their best life. Here's Coach Connors. Welcome to Absolute Empowerment. I'm your host, Jeff Connors, and tonight we have former NFL scout with uh, 32 years with the New York Giants, current author of So You Want to Be an NFL Scout, and a longtime acquaintance and friend, Steve Verderosa. Steve, great to have you on the show. Great to see you again, Jeff. My favorite and the best strength coach I interviewed and hung out with in 33 years on the road. No question about it. <laughs> well, I'd love to see you and uh, Mickey Marvin run, coming through the door. Uh, that was always a special time for me uh, because, you know, you talk to so many scouts, but it's it's always nice when you have a personal relationship with Absolutely. scouts as a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, makes things go a little smoother and, and things uh, makes things more comfortable to talk about players as well. But uh, uh, when Mickey used to pick me up off the ground and hug me and tell me he loved me, that was a special time for me. I don't know if everybody else around me understood that, but <laughs> – it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know where you want to start if you want to start off with Mickey, because after that, everything else kind of kind of fades in comparison. But uh, for the people out there that don't know, Mickey Marvin played 11 years with the Oakland slash Los Angeles Raiders. Yeah. Uh, uh, grew up in Hendersonville in Western North Carolina and matriculated to University of Tennessee. And um, he was a way ahead of his time in that. Mickey was 6'5", and 325 pounds is playing weight. Jeff, when you and I know him, he weighed a few few ounces more than 325. Yes. But uh, Mickey ran a 4840. So um, by today's standards, Mickey would have been a high pick. Um, Mick was a 10th round draft choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to know Mickey after he retired um, when he started scouting for the Raiders. And... Um, didn't really know Mickey, but Mickey went out of his way to know you. And um, he would tell everybody, hey, I love you, man. Okay. Yeah. Or he'd, he'd walk into a, a, a football office to the secretaries. And, and I think I think to some degree, um, some people got a little uncomfortable because they didn't know him and didn't know where he was coming from. Uh, Mickey was unabashed and... Um, when he said he loved you, he meant it. It wasn't it wasn't um, a frivolous or, you know, just something to say. Um, that's the way he was wired. <laughs> and once I got to know him, um, he'd call my house every day. All right. <laughs> Even if I was on the road. All right. Then he called the cell phone, but he talked to my wife, Lori. Oh, just want to call and let you know that I love you every day. All right. To the well, point where, to the point where, you know, sometimes at six fifteen in the morning, it was a little annoying that the phone was ringing, but after a while, everyone in my household looked forward to when the phone was ringing because they might've picked it up before me and they could talk to Mickey. 
So yeah. um, a larger-than-life personality with a larger-than-life uh, love of football and his fellow man, but most important, his love for our, our Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, I just wanted to be worthy of the man's love, you know? <laughs> so uh, it was always good to see Mickey because, you know, he would that would help keep me on track also. Yeah. It, uh, just just to to talk with him and uh, just to see his how strong his faith was. And uh, and we miss him. You know, we miss him. I, every day of my life. Yeah. Every day of my life. I, I think we I mentioned this to you the other day. Um, my father-in-law uh, was a pastor and um, had a tremendous love for the Lord. He left, he left his profession. He was an aerospace engineer and he left his calling to, to, to have a small flock of people, uh, a small congregation in upstate New York in a little town. And he left California in the, in the Pacific coast in a very nice neighborhood to humble himself and do God's will. Right. But my my father-in-law, Cal Felicetti, um, who is just an awesome human being, but Mickey, my father-in-law, and my brother-in-law, Rick Fuhr, three men that I know that had a deep, deep love for the Lord, all died very hard deaths. And mm. um, to see Mickey go the way he did, um, it just breaks my heart. But as we know that, you know, God's wisdom is, is so much more infinite than what we have. Uh, there was a reason why he chose those men who followed him faithfully, um, despite, uh, the physical pain, uh, that they went through. So, um, yeah. that, that's a, that's a lesson for everybody, um, that, that I take to this day. Well, I remember watching because uh, I love always loved Oakland Raiders back in the day, and I remember watching him play. And uh, you know, he was a great football player. And uh, little did I know that I would be able to meet him, become his friend someday. So, uh, very, uh, very honored to have experienced that. It's uh, Steve, you know, you you survived uh, seven or eight transitions, uh, <laughs> uh, and you know that. When I noticed that, I was like, yeah, well, you know, I survived seven head coaches somehow. Uh, I'd like to think it was my hard work and dedication and humility, but uh, I know God had a hand in that for sure. Absolutely. And uh, but, uh, you know, what, what do you attribute your your survival to through through all those transitions with the Giants? Um, try to be humble about the whole thing. You know, when I started there, um, I, I, I started my NFL career. Uh, one year with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And unfortunately for me, or fortunately, really, uh, it was only a one-year contract. And and I was out before I really had a chance to establish myself in the league. And um, through a, a scout on the Giants that we had coached together previously at Columbia University, um, I was brought to training camp in 1988. And they gave me a position, but I was part-time. I was on the honor system. I made $5 an hour, um, but they could use me because one of their longtime scouts uh, was getting up in age and was retiring so they could plug me in where they needed me. So that first year, um, 
I traveled all over the country and I would um, just try to do the very best job I could, still learning because I was only one year prior to that um, doing the job, which wasn't easy, but they liked my work. They liked the way I wrote my reports. They liked my presentation. And they called me into the office and they said, hey, you know, what's it going to take to get you here full time? Yeah. Just, you know, pay me what you think I'm worth and kind of the rest is history. So when I started, I was part time. My second year, I, I did most of the work in the office for the, uh, the pro side and kind of doubled between the two. But I'd be in the office Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, part of Thursday then get on a plane and fly someplace, do a college practice and on a Thursday, tape on Friday, and a college game on Saturday in the pro city and then do a pro game on Sunday. Write the pro reports on the airplane coming back, be in the office Monday morning and give the scouting report to the coaches and the team. Then the next year, I had another responsibility because they really liked me for whatever reason. They thought my work was good. And... Um, they gave me a role to do the Blesto uh, job, which was in the year and the year ahead of time, getting all the information on the players to come. Um, the year after that, they wanted me to move to the southeast part of the country where most of the players are. So each year, as I was going through the organization in the beginning, they kept giving me more and more things to do. When I first got to the Giants, it was a very, very stable organization. Bill Parcells, George Young, Tom Boyster was the personnel director, and the staff really was pretty stable for the most part. Um, only years later did things start to change. So once Parcells retired, we had a, kind of an interim coach with, with the Ray Hanley for two years. But then we had Jim Fossil came in and um, – uh, no, I'm sorry, Dan Reeves. Dan Reeves was 93 to 96. Dan was different. Dan was really a breath of fresh air. Um, but I, I was the, the chief scout in the southeast part of the country. Um, but the continuity of the front office um, stayed that way until Ernie Acorsi became the general manager in 1998. So we had a way of doing things. And um, I, my longevity, I just want to give God the glory. But really, once I was around really good people that taught you the system and you worked in the system and you did your job, um, you were rewarded. So um, I had a very stable job and a very unstable profession. I think my situation is almost unique. As you know, for all the guys that came through your door, um, that wasn't always the case. But, yeah, I survived a lot of coaches, uh, quite a few general managers, and quite a few scouting directors. Um, people ask me a lot of times because I had so much longevity and a lot of experience, how come you're not the general manager? How, how come you're not the personnel director? And I always would tell people that's not God's plan. And, and you know and I know sometimes when we let that flesh man take over for us, that's when we get in trouble. Yep. You know, I, I know one of the things you asked me, you know, what are some of my favorite, favorite verses? Well, lean not on your own understanding. Okay. Right. The flesh man will get you in trouble. If I just look to him and be quiet and listen to what he has to say to me, um, 
it'll keep my path straight. So um, yeah. that to me is the reason I had the longevity where I was. Plus, you have to think, too, we all have egos in this business. And I was part of the success. I went to four Super Bowls and we won three times. Yeah. A lot of those players, I had a voice in the room, which is one of the things about the Giants that that I will always appreciate with the ownership is that they were paying your salary to do a job and they expected you not to sit on your hands when it was time come around the table for you to say what you needed to say. Um, and there were different personalities in there and some of the coaches were yeah. tough. Uh, Parcells was really tough. And a lot of times he was really trying to see it, what your conviction was. Uh, Bill was a psychology major and you'd had to re read between the lines sometimes because you'd walk away. He'd say something to you. What did you mean? What did he mean by that? Or was he testing you? He just wanted to see if you really believed in what you were saying. And then, you know, I could fast forward to Tom Coughlin and Tom was totally different. Tom was black and white. He never had to read between the lines with Tom. Tom would say something to you. You'd know exactly what he meant. Or if he asked you a question, he wanted a direct answer. And you had to really appreciate that about him, too. So um, different styles, uh, both men very successful. So um, they really both had the pulse of the team at the time. No doubt. Well, uh, I always uh, enjoyed spending time with Johnny Parker. And, uh, you know, I, I had him come in for a few clinics, and I've talked to him quite a few times about his faith and spiritual commitment and so forth. So he was another uh, personality in the organization, I guess you could say, that was uh, very dedicated and uh, very well-respected individual, no doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, in in my book, I talk about three strength coaches and two of them. One, one's Johnny Parker and then Jerry Palmieri. Yeah. And of course, yourself. All right. <laughs> Sticking that plug in there for Which you. I appreciate very much. <laughs> well, the common denominator about the three of you guys in a very, very hard business is all three of you had a deep commitment and faith to our Lord. Right. There were other guys there. They were good, but um, I kind of knew where you three guys stood. And, and right. to me, uh, also a testimony to, to your uh, professionalism. Uh, I tell people all the time, you know, you can't be uh, a bad husband and good at work. You can't be good at work and a bad father. You, you can't have... Uh, not be consistent in your life. If you're not consistent in your personal life, you can't be consistent in your professional life. Right. So um, the guys that are grounded, the guys that, um, you know, parked their ego at the door and um, gave the glory to God for where they were and, and were really appreciative for the position that they were in. It shown through in their job. They, they could do their job with, with a, with a gladful heart. Yeah. Well, I felt like I, I got better each year because of those types of things and because of uh, re keep renewing my commitment to those things and keep learning in that respect. So uh, I'm right there with you, you know, and uh, I, I'll tell you a real quick little story. 
one of the guys that was a young scout that uh, I was told to teach him the ropes and show him how to do his schedule and nurture was Jerry Reese. And, and young Jerry uh, really had a meteoric rise to our organization, went from an area scout to assistant pro scout to um, personnel director mm. and then ultimately general manager. Yeah. When, when Jerry became personnel director, he told me I was the first phone call that he made. And he said to me, Steve, I just want to let you know, I appreciate everything you did. He says, I'm sitting in this chair and I know you could do a better job than I could because you taught me how to do the job. He says, you know more about it than I do. And I said, Jerry, I said, don't worry about it. I said, if God wanted me in that chair in East Rutherford, New Jersey, I'd be sitting in that chair and you'd be in Martin, Tennessee. Yeah. I'm here in Apex, North Carolina, and you're in the chair in New Jersey and we'll work together and we'll do great things. Yeah. And he told me, I don't know how many times he told me he was so appreciative of that. Well, you can't do that if you didn't have a relationship with the Lord and you knew who you were. It's his plan. It's not my plan. I tell people all the time, if you really knew what he had in store for you, a lot of people wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. They pull that covers over their head because <laughs> yeah. life is not easy. Life yeah. is a journey. So, um, yeah. you know, Jerry, Jerry was wonderful to work with. I never worked for him. We worked together. And, and that's one of the things about um, I know you and I talked about some of the things that you wanted to cover about leadership. All right. Yeah. Uh, to, to me, that was great leadership. He was humble enough to say that to me. He didn't have to say those things to me. Yeah. But they meant the world to me, too, um, because, oh, like I said, I know I'm repeating myself. We all have egos. Well, I know that you still have a passion and interest for the organization. Uh, not quite ready to fade into the sunset because <laughs> I, every once in a while I'll read a little bit about those Twitter wars you're having with other people. So uh, I don't know how much you want to get into that, but I kind of noticed that. <laughs> well, well, look, you know what? I, I will always bleed giant blue. I grew up in the New York metropolitan area. My, fa my father taught us. We, we learned very young that our, ours was a New York football giant household. So when I got the job with the Giants, I pinched myself every day that I walked through the doors of that stadium to our offices that I was I had a dream job. I, w I was working at the most impressive place that could be in the best organization in professional football with the best ownership. And yeah. to me, it wasn't a job. It was a labor of love. Yeah. So um, when I left um, <laughs> the Twitter thing, I wasn't taking shots at people personally. And some people took it personal. Um, the team stunk. And you know what? Uh, we all have blame for that. Because you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Right. A lot of people there that stayed on, um, you know, listen, the team was not very good. And sometimes when you when you tell it like it is, people don't like it. And yeah. what, what's that old Ricky Nelson song? You can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. Right? <laughs> so uh, I just said the truth. And right. that ruffled a lot of feathers. But. I will tell you this, all right, 
I took great pride in wearing those, those that logo and those colors. And um, I loved being a giant. It to me it was the greatest thing in the world. Right. And Mr. Mara always said, once a giant, always a giant. Yeah. I always got that feeling when I was around you and you never uh, pulled any punches there about your feelings for that organization for sure. So uh, always respected that about you because I, I feel so strongly about loyalty. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and people thought, you know, some of the people that Pat made comments thought that I was being disloyal. Well, that's you know, what, as a parent, you know, sometimes you say things to your kids. They don't like to hear what you have to say, but you say yeah. it, you know, so it has to be said. And look, they made changes that they needed to change. And look what happened last year. The, the team went back into the playoffs. They installed some, installed some pride back into the organization. Right. Yeah. You don't want to have losing season after losing season after losing season because that just that brings everybody down. Sure. Well, I always ask uh, pretty much every guest this same question is uh, when you were growing up, some of your influences, uh, particularly influences that helped you to gain a strong faith. And, uh, you know, some of the challenges that you may have faced in life that would uh, provide you with a testimony of faith. Uh, Do you have a few thoughts there? Sure. Um, You know, when I grew up, we grew up on Long Island, about 60 miles from New York City, and was a Roman Catholic family and really didn't add, have a relationship with our Lord. It was more uh, religion. You know, Sunday you go to church and you kind of live your life during the week. That's, you know, my parents, you know, they got dressed on Sunday and we went to church and uh, that was kind of it. But, you know, t- to say that you were following Christ, that didn't happen until much later in my life. Even after I got married, I got saved in 1992. And really the, the strongest influence for me was my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. I mentioned my father-in-law, Cal Felicetti. He left his profession to follow, to follow the, his faith and right. lead a small congregation in upstate New York. And um, my, mother, my mother-in-law, Dolores, those two... Um, they, they led me to Christ and my life was different after that. Um, doing what I did professionally is really hard. People ask me all the time, well, you just have the greatest job in the world. Really? Guess what? In the beginning, I spent 200 days a year away from my family. Yeah. You know, and then once you have kids, you miss a lot. Um, you know, I couldn't do that without knowing that I have my heavenly father every night when I lay my head on a pillow in some strange hotel that uh, gives me the strength to go on the next day. Um, as far as some pitfalls and, and things that you uh, have to endure that are on a negative, um, when my wife Lori and I got married, you know, her dream was to, to have children. And we went through infertility for six years. Mm. And um, so we decided to adopt, and uh, our oldest son we adopted. Uh, he's from Guatemala, mm-hmm. and then and then we got pregnant, and our, our daughter was born, and we had all kinds of complications at birth, and unfortunately, our daughter Lauren lived about five and a half months before God took her. So you want to talk about a, a, a kick in the in the groin, a kick in the stomach. Um, 
here I was as a young scout trying to have a young family uh, and move forward in my profession and to lose a child. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would, I would, wouldn't wish that on any human being um, was really hard. It was really hard to go back to work and leave my wife who was really suffering, but she was great. Unbelievable spirit, unbelievable woman of the Lord. Um, she um, said, Hey, you know, you have a job to do. Your job is to be the head of the household and feed the family. So you have to go to work. And um, it was really hard. That That's probably been the hardest thing in my life to endure and persevere and fight through and um, stay the course and run the race. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. I know that's tough. Uh, but God is good because... Yeah. Then we were basically we were told we weren't going to have any kids, and then our middle son was born, and um, he's in football now. He he's the uh, executive director. He he does all the video. He's the video director at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, your old stomping ground. Yeah, and uh, working for Mac Brown, and um, he's he's really good at what he does and has a passion for football. Where do you think he got that from? Um, it's all good, you know. And then our daughter—you saw—you saw my daughter briefly as she was trying to help us with the, with the yeah. IT stuff here. She went to Meredith right here in Raleigh. And oh yeah, ex exercise science major, and she's a personal trainer right now, working at the Y around the corner here. And she does very well, and um, that's my princess. So God is good. Uh, his infinite yeah. wisdom, uh, you know, he he. He took our daughter, but he kept he keeps giving to me every day. And, and there's many times I wonder why I was so blessed. You know, there's a lot of guys that work in the National Football League that never even get to go to a Super Bowl, let alone win one. I went four times. Are you kidding me? How does that happen? Yeah. It doesn't have it doesn't happen by accident, Jeff. So um no doubt. Very blessed with that. Well, I, I I've never been to the Super Bowl, but I I thank God about a hundred times a day for my career and where I'm at now and the time I get to spend with my wife and uh, you know I just have no no regrets about anything and God I can't I can't believe how how much I've been blessed over the years and and still trying to figure it out but uh, and that's why I'm so thankful right now to this day and and one of the main reasons that that I that I started this podcast as well. Now oh, this is wonderful. Um, so I wanted to, uh, you know, in your book, uh, very detailed, a lot of people in your book and also very detailed about how to evaluate people. And uh, I did want to ask you, though, going back to your head coaches, uh, if you became a head coach, you know, what are some of the primary things you would have taken from some of those individuals that you work for those head coaches? Yeah, it would be hard to try to take something from Bill because he was such a larger-than-life personality. Right. And, and being a young guy around the team and around those players, it, it was something to me how he could mold that team into his tough guy personality. And the guys, they took it on, whether it was 
Stacy Robinson as a receiver or backup running backs like Lee Roussan. There were guys that would go through the wall for Bill. It was unbelievable. And the frontline players, Lawrence Taylor, of course, but guys like Carl Banks. And it was, there were a lot of tough guys, you know, yeah. Mark Bavaro. And of course, Phil Sims, who was the toughest guy of all the tough guys on a team loaded with tough guys. Um, it was amazing. <laughs> And a lot of ego personalities. I mean, Bill and, and Phil would get into it on the sideline. But yeah. um, I think they loved it. And they fed and other guys fed off it. Where today's athlete, I mean, if I, I don't see a coach today go down the sideline and berate starting player, right? Okay, let alone a Super Bowl MVP the way yeah. Bill did. I mean, and I'm I know some of it was calculated, but a lot of it was emotion. And and you, and you know this, whether it's the weight room, the practice field, or, or a game. I tell people all the time, football is emotional. It's an emotional, physical, personal game. It, it, you know, you shake somebody's hand. When you touch another human being, when you put your hand on some, around somebody's shoulder, it's personal. All right. Football is personal because I'm putting my body on your body. And those big men or trying to move another big man off his spot. Tell me that's not personal, right? Yeah. So how do you get guys to, to buy into that? So Bill was very unique. Um, what I would take from a guy, I would take from Tom Coughlin, look guys straight in the eye and tell them the facts, all right? And tell them the truth, right? Because players can see through you like a pane of glass if you don't know what you're talking about. And be honest with them. Um, I see a lot of young coaches, both in the college level and the pro level. Yeah. And boy, I tell you what, sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd be out on our practice field and uh, I would see something that's going on and the coach would make a comment. Yeah, yeah, that was a great rep. That was a great rep. I'm saying to myself, that was a horse dung rep. <laughs> yeah. You know, don't tell him what he wants to hear. Tell him the truth. Yeah. Right. And because you're not helping them if you don't do that. And, right. and how are they going to get better if you tell them that that's a good rep and it really wasn't? Yeah. So, you know, Tom was Tom was like you, and I, I said that to you that you you were transparent. You there was no filter with Jeff Connors. Now, I, I think that honesty is the best policy. Yeah. There's there's another biblical, uh, you know, trait right there. You know, so um, well, I like that about Tom. Um, yeah. Uh, Jim Fossil was different in that Jim was very personable, all right, and uh, respectful to everybody and a really, really good listener, yeah. which is another trait that's really important. So now you have three guys I mentioned that were totally different from each other, both in personalities and in style, yet all three guys were really successful. Well, I always told our guys I was I was never going to lie to a scout. So I mean, I just made sure that they always knew that. And I, I don't think some of them knew how important the our, our meetings with scouts were, Correct. you know, to their futures. And uh, so uh, I always try to educate them along those lines. Of course, uh, I thought that was very important. You know, getting into uh, the evaluations. You know, some of my own personal experiences with. Uh, 
uh, guys that I coached uh, that became Giants, uh, Emmanuel McDaniel, one of my favorites of all time that I coached, who was an extremely hard worker and overachiever. Uh, mm-hmm. Madison Hedgecock, one of the toughest kids I ever coached. And, uh, you know, so I like to think about those guys when it comes to uh, evaluating intangibles. Uh, okay, well, let, let, let's – there's tangibles and yep. intangibles. Yep. So the tangibles, the height, weight, speed, that's easy, yep. all right? So everybody can see that. That guy's six foot five. He's 240 pounds. He runs four, five, two. Uh, he's a can't miss. How come he's not very good? Because the intangible factor there – is going to override. You can't see inside a man's head or his heart, but that's the most important thing because a guy like Emac, gosh dang, he was never out of position. He knew what to do and how to do it, and he did it to the best of his ability. You know, so And he played, he played quite a while with, um, how can I put it, uh, average talent for the NFL level. He wasn't big. He wasn't overly fast, uh, you know, by the guy walking the street standard. He's a world-class athlete, but compared to other athletes at the NFL level, he was average, right. but he was a way bu- above average player who beat the odds and played for quite a while because of the intangibles. All right. Yeah. So w- what lends into the intangibles? Well, there's intelligence. All right. He was an intelligent kid who figured out what he needed to do, whether it was in the playbook or on the practice field, and implement it on Sunday on the biggest stage. Not every guy can do that. Right. So when you're out on the practice field, when you're at a school, when you're watching the tape, those are things that you're looking for. Is he the guy in the front of the line? Is he the guy in the back of the line? Is he paying attention in practice to what the coach is saying and then trying to implement it? Or is he doing his own thing? Sure. Right. Um, to me, practice was invaluable. One of the best practices sometimes was pregame warm-up. You know, you could see how a guy was locked in. Or it was a guy kind of jiving and jerking around, you know, and, and right. putting on a show. So th- those were the things. And, and I appreciate that about <laughs> Emmanuel McDaniel because he used every ounce of what he had to the best of his ability. Well, you remember Hacksaw Reynolds used to show up uh, for pregame meal fully dressed. How about that one? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. I always love that story, man. <laughs> that's uh, right. And now, big, first, big, there, there, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Uh, big Madison Hedgecock. Boy, I yep. tell you what, I loved him. I loved him at that school when I saw him at UNC Chapel Hill. And and people don't know this. The, the kid came in on offense. And then one year, because of, you know, attrition or whatever, or a coach's whim, they moved him to defense, and he was a defensive rush end for a year. (laughs) Then they moved him back to offense, and he was a battering ram fullback. And then all the running backs went down, and his last year, he became the bell cow running back. Yeah. And I remember John Bunting telling me the tougher the game and the dirtier the other team was playing, the better he liked it. Oh, yeah. and. So I was really lobbying for him during the draft. We were in the fifth round, and I'm pounding on the table for this guy. We went in another direction. He gets drafted by the Rams and plays, I want to say, 
two full years or, or two years and a little bit with the Rams, and he gets on the waiver wire. And I remember calling up, and the way it works is you're once a guy goes into the league, all the college reports go over to the pro side. And once that happened, the pro guys, then they also have their grades once the guys play in the league and they put that information together. And that's how they, they decide who you want to bring in that maybe was let go by another team or was available or a guy on the street. So when they saw my high grade, you know, they brought him in and the rest is history. <laughs> right. We got in that Super Bowl against the undefeated Patriots. Our fullback was 272 pounds and our running back was 264 pounds. And they were bigger. Both of them were bigger than our defensive ends. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I'm repeating myself when they, I say the game is physical and personal. Yeah. You know, you can do four and five wide receivers, but if we're in 21 personnel or, and we're going to run the rock, all right, and we're coming at you and we're going to run downhill. I tell you what, it, it, it's, it, it tests a man's will. Yeah. Well, Madison really improved with regard to his movement and mobility and fluidity through college. Uh, I mean, he could also power clean 385. So uh, uh, I was always very impressed with him and very happy to see his success in the league. And then, then of course, you have Hakeem Nix, for instance, who had this, the man was talented, but, you know, he also power cleaned 352, uh, which wasn't too bad for a receiver. And that was a power clean, not a hand clean. Yeah. He, um, you know, one of the things that I did in the book was I, I solicited Eli for a little help with receivers and just to get his perspective on all the guys that he played with. And he felt that all the players that he played with in his 16 years of the Giants, that Hakeem Nix was the most talented receiver that he ever played with. Wow. And um, unfortunately for Hakeem, once he left you, he did not train for Jerry Palmieri like he needed to because you get a couple of dings and a couple of injuries. You know, this yeah. is your livelihood. You need to stay on top of it. But right. as far as a receiver goes, you know, he didn't blow up the clock when he ran. No, not I'm, at all. I'm, use, I'm using another terminology, scouting terminology. Big guys, big guys carry their pads better than little guys. And Hakeem might have ran a four-five-five, five, but with that uniform on on Sunday and with that ball in his hands, just like Jerry Rice, they ran away from people. And right. that three-fifty-two power clean. And that power from the ground up showed up on game day because he broke a lot of tackles and you couldn't arm tackle him or try to pull him down. And he would, he, he was really good for us. Really good. Uh, no doubt. So uh, how would you define the, the giants culture? Because this word is uh so widely used. And of course, yes. every time a new regime comes in, Hey, we got to change the culture. And right. in my whole thing at ECU, no matter who came in or whether I was still going to be there or not, I, I was like, Hey, look, ECU's got tradition and culture. You might need to recapture the culture, but you don't need to change the culture. And, uh, but I guess people have a lot of different, maybe definitions of culture. Uh, but, uh, Talk a little bit about the Giants culture. 
The problem, the problem that I see it is the National Football League has become so transient now. I, I mean, let's face it, a coach doesn't win in his first year, he gets fired. That never happened before. So how is he going to put together his staff and his his way of doing things if it's changed overnight? And with free agency, you're bringing guys in from every which way. And why are they going to buy in? So as far as the giant culture was, when I got there, it was already established. The Giants won the Super Bowl in the 86 season. 87 was a strike shortened season. That's when I was with Tampa. And I came in in 88. So uh, there was no reestablishment of culture then because you had Phil Sims and Bavaro and Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks and and uh, those Leonard Marshall and and all those guys up front. So, you know, 88, we went 10 and 6. 89, we were 12 and 4, got beat in the playoffs. And so what happened in, in 1990, we do bring some players in that are veteran players from other programs that also were successful. We brought in Everson Walls from the Cowboys. Uh, we brought in Dave Dursen from the Packers, uh, excuse me, from the Bears, who won the Super Bowl with the 85 Bears. We brought in Johnny Cooks, who was the second player taken in the draft uh, by the, the Colts. So these were all frontline players for other winning programs that are now with us. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, those guys were never the first guys online. They had to get in line with the guys that were already there. This is how we do things here. So that's easier said than done because it was already an established program. Now, as things go on, uh, as the years passed, when Dan Reeves came in, you know, he he inherited a lot of those players. That was uh, Lawrence Taylor and and um, Phil Sims last year. And so there was a transition there with 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 Dan and they did things a little different. Um, but for the most part, um, George Young was still there and Tom Boyster was still there and the ownership was there. Don't ever, uh, at, in the national football league level, don't ever discount the ownership. All right. Mr. Mara was there every day at every practice. Now he didn't meddle in the football, but you knew he was there and his eyes and ears were always on how everything operated. And as the patriarch of the organization, everybody respected him and respected that this is, he's not just an owner. This isn't a business. This is his life. Right. His father founded the team. He's been that team his whole life. Uh, the Giants were him. So that culture uh, just permeated. So any yeah. new guy that came in, uh, you get along to go along. All right. Almost like the army. Okay. Yeah. Now, as we fast forward, uh, things change and times change. Uh, John Mara took over from his dad in, in uh, 05 Wellington passed away, but the mantle was, was passed on on how we did things. Uh, unfortunately at the end of my career, um, and I know this is what you want to talk about was culture. We went from a very stable organization to a very unstable organization. Yeah. So we had we had uh, Jim Fossil for seven years and Tom Coughlin for almost thirteen. So for twenty years we had two coaches with yeah. the same scouting system, 
the same uh, hierarchy in how we do things with the general manager, the scouting director, the personnel people, the scouts, and the coaches, and how we work. So if a new guy came in, this is how it's done. All of a sudden now, um, Tom gets let go, and Ben McAdoo is the coach. Yeah. We go to the playoffs in 2016. He's one vote away from coach of the year. Everything that went right in 16 went wrong in 17. He gets fired before the end of the season. Now, what's your message? Okay. What's the culture now? All right. So we fire a guy a year and a half, and we hire another coach, Pat Shermer. Pat was there for two years. Yeah. And it's a roller coaster. These aren't my players. Now we're bringing guys in from all over the league. Well, you do that. They're not looking at the wall of Lawrence Taylor and Harry Carson and Mark Bavaro and those guys. You know, they're they're who are they looking at? You know, you know, Jason Pierre Paul, he he's not there that long. Yeah, he won a Super Bowl, but he's not there that long. So now you know, as far as culture, it, it changes. You have free agency, the salary cap, and the draft. You're bringing new players in from the draft. You know, talking to strength coaches, it's amazing to get some of these guys in the off-season program to work. They don't want to do your program. They got their own coaches on the side. So what's that culture? Now, guys have to deal with that today. <laughs> it's one I don't want to be part of, I can tell you that. Right. Uh and also, um, I wanted to also mention at the collegiate level, of course, with the NIL and the portal, I mean, uh, I don't know how that's affected scouting, but it certainly has affected team culture, in my opinion. Well, here, here you go. Um, college level, you have to have recruiters now just looking at the portal stuff. It's almost like having a pro department at the NFL level. And yep. then the guys that are looking at the high school tape, they're the college scouts on the pro level. Yeah. And you, you get a kid, you sign a kid, you bring him in, and he doesn't think he's going to play. And so he goes someplace else. And now you're giving kids all kinds of money before they've ever done anything. That young man who's the quarterback at Texas, he went to Ohio State first and signed an NIL for a million dollars before he ever played it down. He wasn't good enough to get on the field at Ohio State, so he bolted to Texas and then got another NIL. <laughs> He's 19 years old driving a Lamborghini SUV. Well, God bless him, man. But, yeah. heck, isn't it still supposed to be about the game? And aren't you supposed to be some kind of student athlete? I, I know that, that that's a, you know, I'm old school and, and that's archaic to think that, but aren't you supposed to try to get an education? Uh, well, I never so yeah, such a drastic change from when we we had to worry about if we were going to buy somebody a sandwich, you know. And <laughs> so what a right. what a drastic change, you know. So so to me, this whole thing about culture, be careful with that word because, yeah. um, and and nowadays with the NFL rosters are bigger, and there's more turnover. Really, what is how are you going to establish culture? Right. Yeah, it, it's it's really hard. Tough. You really know, Sean Payton was in New Orleans for a long time. You know, after a while, everybody's message, is, I guess, wears out its welcome, especially with today's yeah. athlete. 
So um, that that's hard. It's yeah. real hard now. You know, I, I've talked to Mac Brown over there at, at UNC, and I said to Mac, I said, you know, what what keeps you going? And he told me, he says he loves being around the players. He says they keep him young. So I, everybody has a different perspective on that. Yeah, somebody asked me not too long ago, hey, uh, you know, Max got a $10 million house at the beach, uh, one up in the mountains, one in the Chapel Hill. You know, why is he still coaching? I said, hey, I can't tell you. <laughs> but uh, there's got to be some reason for it. I guess Max, what, 72 now? Yeah, I think he is, 72 or 73. 72, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I see him on the practice field. He's got a lot of energy. Yeah. God bless him, you know. No doubt. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, I had Kevin Colbert on. Uh, and Kevin's uh, a story in itself, you know, his his career. Uh, but, you know, he retired. And, of course, uh, he started this thing with the Steelers called Lend a Hand. And so uh, they're going to have a, you know, they got a Zoom call about once a month. Uh, basically got about 30 guys on a Zoom call now. And uh, just the whole thing is, you know, with a lot of guys, you know, when the lights go out, it's hard. And, you know, mm -hmm. four or five years later, they get lost a little bit. And so bring them back together for network, get back to uh, the team concept, maybe how, try to figure out how they can help each other. I know that he had a presentation on uh, wills and trusts. And, uh, and then good. he talked. So, uh, so I'm starting a program uh, called Locker Room for Life. And I'm going to do, you know, the same type of thing. Uh, Jeff Carr is going to get on there and talk about uh, – wealth management and i've got a uh, pastor coming on it's going to talk about how to lead prayer in the home uh we're going to kick that off may the 25th Sounds and great. Uh, try to get some guys on board there but I, I really loved that concept and i really uh was very thankful to learn what kevin was doing and uh and i thought we had a great uh discussion but uh you know i just so many times through my career i saw so many guys go by the wayside where by the time you that that class coming in as freshman gets to their senior year, there's not a whole lot of guys left uh, for whatever reason. But, you know, I started a website called Armored Life. And uh, that's another thing that I'm trying to do is uh, any way that I can contribute to saving people or mm -hmm. educating people as to, how not to lose your career at the collegiate level, because I saw so many guys go by the wayside for smoking marijuana, for instance, you know, which now it's a whole different perspective, I guess. I don't even know. Oh, gosh. Don't get but, me started. Uh, I don't even, you know, I can't think of one good thing it does for an athlete, but I guess some people believe that it does. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, but that's, that's where we're at there. So, you know, we, uh, we got a few minutes left here. I don't. I don't know if you'd want to maybe mention what you're doing with UNC. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. Well, um, I've done it for a couple of years now. The first year I did with Mac, um, there was a handful of players. They weren't sure if they uh, wanted the guys to come back. There was some that they really wanted to come back and didn't want them to leave early. Yeah, it was, you know, some they were trying to really encourage to stay for another year because they needed another year of, of development. And all college players do. I mean, I mean, the only way you get better playing football is by playing football. Right. And the players come into the league now younger and younger. And um, 
for the life of me, um, uh, a lot of guys make a bad choice. You know, when, when underclassmen, not to deviate, but when underclassmen first started getting into the NFL, 1989, only six of them, you know, it was Deion Sanders and Barry Sanders and a couple other guys. They were the premier players. You could understand why they were leaving. Yeah. Never, never forget uh, 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 the head coach at Oklahoma State, uh, uh, Jones. Uh, who are you looking at? He comes into the office. You know, he got a real uh, way he talks Southern Joe. So, Coach, who are you looking at? And I told him, so-and-so and so-and-so. You're not looking at Barry Sanders? He's only the best guy on the team. I said, junior, Coach. <laughs> well, he's not going to go to English class 101 anymore. You know, so yeah. uh, um, those guys you get. But a couple of years ago, there was 128 guys declared for the draft. You know, yeah. And – I want to say there was, I think, 40 or 42 did not get drafted. No, your college career is over. You know, you don't have the XFL and the USFL to fall back on. So what are you going to do? Now you're on the street. You know, are you going to go back to school and at least get your degree? I don't know how many of those did that either. No. Yeah. So um, to me, uh, staying, in, staying in school is paramount. So what Mac wanted me to do was, grade some players and give an unabashed opinion because as you know as a coach at the college level you're going to deal with some parents and we all are parents and maybe we have unrealistic expectations of our kids and what they can be or do and so mac was able to give the reports to you know the parents and say hey look here's a guy that spent 33 years in the nfl and went to the Super Bowl four times, and this is what he thinks. You know, so you might not like what I have to say, but this is what he's saying. So he used it as a tool. And then this year, it just expanded a little bit more. You know, so um, you know, what can what can our defensive line coach do? What do you what do you think they need to do better as a group? You know, that type of thing. So yeah. I wrote individual reports, and um, you know, we talked a little football. You know, just, just yeah, that's awesome. So, um, and for me, I love it because my passion for the game has not wavered. Um, you know, some people have asked me, well, how come you don't do it anymore? You know, how, how come you don't get a job with another team? Well, first of all, for me, there was only one team. Yeah. And, and second of all, um, I did it long enough. And yeah. my wife and I, I missed a lot with my family. And yeah, I and, feel you, man. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And, and people don't realize that, you know, um, you know, when, when you're on the road, 12, 14, 15 days at a time and, yeah. you know, it, it wears on you, um, right. you know, and there were different times I was on the road. I'll never forget when nine 11 happened, I was away. And that was, that was a strange time in America. Oh, and I, I made sure I got home the next day because I didn't know if there was going to be a day after that day. Right. You know, so um, but I missed a lot of games when my kids were growing up, a lot of church recitals and plays and things like that that you can never get back. So um, what we tried to do as a family, we always tried to do uh, quality instead of quantity. Yeah. So um, the Giants afforded me a, a, a very fine living. So we had a lot of really nice vacations and went to a lot of really good places. And of course, my my sons really enjoyed going to training camp every year. 
and sure. hanging out with the players. Uh, we we had some players that were um, just unbelievably great to the kids. Yeah. So uh, that's awesome. You know, Amani Toomer, uh, Tiki Barber was, was so great with my kids. Um, I, I can name dozens of guys. Yeah. I can I can visualize my oldest son sitting in the equipment room because he used to do the laundry one year uh, playing checkers with uh, <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy Shockey. You know? yeah. So uh, those type of things to me, I tell the kids all the time, look, yeah, I know I wasn't there and it broke my heart, too. But, hey, you got to do things that other people never had a chance to do. And those are memories for a lifetime. No doubt. Yeah, I got to. I was fortunate enough to coach 16 bowl qualified teams. And, uh, you know, having my family go to the bowls was very special. You know, my kids always really enjoyed that. So yeah. good stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, hey, I'm in the Cary area quite a bit. Uh, maybe we get together sometime. You keep praying Absolutely. for me. I keep praying for you. And uh, <laughs> uh, I you really told me you live on the fourth hole of your golf course. I told you I'm going to show up one morning. Hey, hey come on, man. We'll have a great time, but uh, always appreciated our friendship. And if you would just uh, give us the title of the book again and how people can find the book when okay. it's coming out, a little bit of information about the book. All right. So um, not not to over, over blow it or anything else like that. One of my high school buddies uh, moved to Baton Rouge 25, almost 30 years ago. And he wrote for newspaper and had a, cable TV show. So I'm in the press box at LSU one, one year. And I hear this yeah. voice calling my name. So his name is Lee Feinswag and, and he was writing for the Baton Rouge paper. So he was covering LSU at Georgia that day. Right. So we started talking. And the next time I went to Baton Rouge, we hung out and I, I went on his show and he says, you need to write a book. And then uh, a couple of years later, I meet Sal Palantonio and I run into him a second time, seven or eight years later, and he told me the same thing. You need to write a book. So I started just putting stuff down, stuff that happened in the past, and I kept writing stuff down. And that's really how the thing materialized. Um, and a lot of guys in the business, all, all guys would always say the same thing. I need to write a book. And I would tell them, well, I'm doing it. Well, yeah. I hope so. So the other day, Jim Nagy, who's the executive director of the Senior Bowl, called me up. He says, hey, you did it. We all talked about it, but you did it. So um, I got together with a publishing company, and I got denied three times before that. But long, <laughs> long story short, uh, Sal Palantonio told me, keep trying. Don't take no for an answer. He said, the stories are too good. So um, company did it, and uh, the official release is Tuesday. It's been a, available for pre-order for almost a month now. And they told me that uh, we've already pre-ordered over 900 copies. So I'm kind of ecstatic about that. That's awesome. So, um, it's available starting Tuesday on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. So uh, people can go online and uh, the book is available as an ebook, a uh, soft cover or a hard cover. Uh -huh. And um, it's not just about the Giants. It, if, if you're a real football fan, uh, I give you in-depth about certain drafts, uh, a lot about players. Uh, it's the history of scouting, which uh, is, is pretty diverse. And um, I delve into some systems. 
And because a lot of guys there think they can do what I do, but they can't do what I do. <laughs> all right. Every guy watching TV on Sunday, they all think they can do it. But uh, being a hotel in Starkville, Mississippi, when your team is losing for 12 or 13 days in a row and tell me if you can do it. And then if you can do it for 33 years, you know, so, gotcha. uh, it's, it's yeah. not easy, but I was a blessed I was blessed to be with an organization and ownership that really cared about you. Um, you know, I had mentioned when my daughter passed, I, I can't, I can't tell you how great the giants were to me and my wife. It, it was immeasurable. So um, uh, I, I led a dream career and, and, but you have to have the uh, put your ego aside because you're not on TV on the sidelines. And, and it's very rare if anybody ever, ever knows you. All right. Yeah. I, I will. I will close you with this with this one funny story. So we're down in Tampa for Super Bowl 35, the one that we got beat by the uh, uh, the Ravens. So it's Saturday night before the game and we're at the team hotel. And, and the previous year we were at the Super Bowl, the, the team hotel was locked down. There were not fans in the lobby or anything else like that. But this this time we're in the hotel and people are walking around the lobby and you know players would walk through and people would be running up getting autographs whatever that's the way the league didn't want the lockdown anymore. So anyhow, um, I I go to the valet to get the give them uh, bring my rental car up and my wife and kids my two sons are with us we're in the lobby and all of a sudden this, these four or five fans are there with their autograph books and everything. And they're yelling, Hey, Hey, there's Brad D'Aloiso, who was our kicker. So I'm looking around. I don't see Brad. There he is. Next thing I know, I figured out they're running straight at us. And my wife goes, they're coming for us. And we had to run to the car. Okay. And they're yelling, Brad, Brad, come back. <laughs> so you know, we lived in notoriety as scouts and, and you get used to it. And you know what, if, if, unless you're humble and, and you can deal with it, it's fine. But you know, you're, you're part of a program. And um, I was very fortunate to be with some really great winning teams and, and we got to the promised land and it, it, it was wonderful, but it doesn't change your life. What changes your life is, is our Lord. That's what changes your life. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I got, I have four rings and a lot of diamonds. <laughs> My wife always tells me I have more diamonds than her. Um, but that, that, and that's nice, but, but it, it doesn't change who you are. And um, I think if you keep that in perspective, um, you'll enjoy it more. No doubt. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show and, uh, I'm going to definitely uh, keep promoting your book. And, I appreciate uh, that. Here, here we go right here. This is what the book looks like. So uh, anybody who is watching, uh, it would be well worth your investment. And uh, I just want to thank you for being on the show. And uh, this is Jeff Connors uh, signing off for Absolute Empowerment. Uh, God bless, and we'll see you next week. And, Steve, I hope to see you soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Okay, take care. See ya. You've been listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on the Sports Objective. Join us every Monday night for a new edition of the show. 
Listen to the show pretty much everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Sports OBJ on Twitter and TikTok, at the Sports Objective on Instagram. Like and follow our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. As always, we appreciate you listening to the show, and go Pirates!